the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Basilisk Nation, Chimera Concatenation, and Obelisk Accretion. Cutting corners in the Leiden universe, plus we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. We have started reissuing these great new editions of Larry Correa's Monster Hunter series in leather-bound or basilisk-hide-bound or dragon-hide-bound form and signed by Larry. Out in December was book one, which was Monster Hunter International, of course, and now out at booksellers is book two in the series, Monster Hunter Vendetta. So to commemorate and reflect on the series, which we'll see book six out in August, Monster Hunter Siege, this time we have part one of a two-part interview with Larry Correa. Larry talks about Monster Hunter Vendetta, and we also have a pretty wide-ranging discussion of the Monster Hunter universe beginnings and, and what Larry was up to in real life as he created what has become this blockbuster contemporary fantasy series. There are a few mild spoilers, since we are talking about a commemorative leather-bound edition of Monster Hunter Vendetta, and it seems like a reader who's interested in that would probably have read the books uh, in paperback first. We also continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And now here's the news. This month on the front page at Bain.com, we'll have some great free fiction and nonfiction. For our short story offering, we have a tale connected to the next entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Leaden Universe, The Gathering Edge. That's the name of the novel. The story is called Cutting Corners, and it is by Sharon and Steve, of course. Cargo Master Therney Cheers likes to do things by the book, but when massive amounts of money are on the line, others prefer to cut corners. Doing so often spells danger. Now, what is supposed to be a routine pilot recertification test for Therney takes a turn for the worse, and Therney finds himself embroiled in intrigue and danger in a tough spaceport on a rough-and-tumble planet. And for nonfiction, we have Chimeras, Science and Science Fiction, a really cool article by genetics researcher and science fiction author Dan Cobalt. Dan takes us to the cutting edge of the field of genetic engineering to discuss how modern science is creating chimeras, genetic amalgamations of animal and human genetics. This is a technique that may create, say, pigs that can grow human organs inside themselves, like kidneys and livers, and they would be used for harvesting and transplant into humans. Dan also touches on the ethical implications of this rapidly developing method of genetic engineering and talks about some versions of chimeras presaged in science fiction novels and stories. Cutting Corners by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller and Chimeras, Science and Science Fiction by Dan Kobold are now available to read for free at Bain.com. And when the front page content changes next month, they will be perpetually available in the free ebook collections, Free Nonfiction 2017 and Free Short Stories 2017, which can be downloaded in all formats at BainEbooks.com.
This is part one of a two-part interview with Larry Correa talking about the new signed leatherback edition of Monster Hunter Vendetta and the creation and origins of the Monster Hunter universe. I want to welcome Larry Correa to the podcast. Hey, Larry. Hey, Tony. Larry Correa is the creator of the New York Times best-selling Monster Hunter series. He's also directly responsible for Magic Noir-themed Grimnor Chronicles, uh, one of my favorite series, and the epic fantasy novel The Son of the Black Sword, book one in the Forgotten Warrior Saga, so that means there'll be more of those. Larry is the co-author with Mike Coopery of The Dead Six books, and uh, with John Ringo, he's the co-author of the Monster Hunter Memoirs series, um, including Memoirs Sinners, which is, uh, is out, and I think... Uh, There'll be another one out this year. And there's a collection that I know is going to be out this year, a story set in the Monster Hunter universe coming out in autumn, written by a host of authors. And that is extremely cool, and we're really happy to to have that. Um, Larry's been an accountant, part owner of a good gun store, a shooting instructor, a competitive shooter himself. He grew up in the California Outback and now lives in Utah. And now at booksellers, or at least on order, um, because uh, Amazon has not started shipping these yet, as I understand it, is the second of a planned issue, uh, reissue of the Monster Hunter series books in these beautiful signed leather-bound editions, or maybe it's Basilisk-bound or Dragon Skin, or we're not sure. The Monster Hunter main series books are the Monster Hunter International, which came out in December in this uh, leather-bound edition, and Monster Hunter Vendetta, uh, Monster Hunter Alpha, Monster Hunter Nemesis, Monster Hunter Legion, and and hey, Larry turned in Siege, which we are very happy to be um, bringing out this summer. And right now, uh, Bane has reissued Monster Hunter uh, Vendetta for April. So Larry, um, I guess most of the people that will be listening here are going to be people who have read the books, and uh, we should say perhaps you might get into a couple of spoilers, so... Um, but can you just kind of give us the broad idea? Okay, we're we're going we're gonna to get real spoilery, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you're going to buy Monster Hunter, Vendetta, or come listen to a, a leather-bound, uh, discussion of leather-bound edition, you, I suspect you've read it. But let's. can you give a sort of overview of the Monster Hunter series for, uh, for those uh, newbies who are tuning in? Sure. Uh, yeah, the Monster Hunter series is uh, it's uh, action adventure, urban fantasy, and it's about a company called Monster Hunter International, and they are professional monster hunters. And uh, they, it's it's their job that they're they're kind of like military contractors, and uh, they just handle monster problems around the world, and uh, they get paid really good to do it because it's stupidly dangerous, and it's just about their adventures. Uh, main character uh, is a fellow named Owen Pitt, and uh, we kind of follow him from his first introduction to, to the, you know, the real world, uh, involving uh, uh, when, when his boss turns into a werewolf and tries to eat him. And uh, so he goes from accountant to gunslinger accountant, and uh, <laughs> works for this company, and it's all their various adventures. And yeah, so we're six books into the regular series now, and uh, like, like Tony said, we've got the, the spinoffs, and it's it's been really popular and it's been a whole lot of fun. Yeah. Well, let's. Um, I thought maybe we could discuss some of the uh, the origins, beginnings of of things. Um, 
I think a lot of readers would like you to kind of reflect on some of the earlier days and some of the early moments maybe you haven't talked about in a while in the in the first books. Um, like in Vendetta, uh, you were talking about Owen. He's he's changed in Vendetta. This is um, both you writing a second novel in a series um, when you knew that uh, you were going to have more. I don't know if you, when you wrote Monster Hunter if Owen was uh, if you were sure that you were going to write more or not. And uh, how has Owen? Um, he's, I would. he's a different dude. <laughs> I, I I had high hopes. Yeah. Well, they seem to have panned out. So. Uh, tell us a little bit about Owen at this point when Vendetta is uh, taking place sure okay so when when we first meet him in the first book he's uh, he's in his early 20s um, he's got his first real job after college he's uh, you know trying to get on with his life he's got a lot of issues with the family because of how he was raised uh, his dad is a real hard case and later on we find out why his dad was such a hard case but you know at the time we don't know and um, well, he's got a lot of things going on in his life that, that young people do. You know, he's still trying to kind of figure out his, his what he wants to do with himself. Um, he kind of discovers that monster hunting is his calling in life. Uh, he meets the woman he loves. Uh, as, as we get into Vendetta, he's matured quite a bit. He's had a lot of experiences. He's gotten his butt kicked a lot. <laughs> I won't get too specific, but this dude goes through some stuff. Um, so by the time we get to the second book... Uh, he's a little more experienced. He's a little more comfortable with what he's doing for a living now. Uh, he's got a family. And uh, in that book, the, the big uh, conflict there is that in the end of the first book, they inadvertently wind up pissing off an elder god, uh, kind of a Lovecraftian super being from beyond space and time, uh, holds Owen personally accountable for injuring it. And so it declares a vendetta against this one little poor human being. And it's not even his fault. But, you know, uh, well, he, elder things aren't really, like, super in tune. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a, um, he's, well, at the end of Vendetta, I mean, pretty much, like, you know, sent a nuke down the, into the thing's eye. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, uh, in uh, International. If, um, so I guess that could even piss off a god. What are some, what? How are the magical rules work here? There's a wonderful uh, scene in in uh, Vendetta where Owen is thrust into uh, you know the old gods' world for for a little while, um, where he <laughs> the way you describe it is is ultra cool to even try to imagine, mind bending. So, what are the rules between these two worlds? Why do the old gods care about us, and why, what are they after here? established in the series is there's a there's several different big cosmic factions these kind of warring cosmic factions and as the series goes on you we learn more about you know what these different factions are and what they want and um some some are good some are evil and most of them are kind of ambivalent in that uh the analogy i used in in uh in vendetta was they had uh, some they were feeding ducks on a pond bread and sometimes it's like they want to take over a world simply to not let the other guys have it. And so the old ones are just basically, you know, like I said, Lovecraftian, mind-bending evil. And they want to break things because they're there. But they don't really care about you individually. You're just, you know, fleshy meat apes. Um, they don't really care about us. And it's not like it's not like it's personal. But basically, if they can't have it, they'll destroy it. 
And so anything, basically it's just a big competition between these unfeeling cosmic horrors. Basically it's turf war. It's an it's a interstellar, interdimensional turf war. And our poor saps are just these poor little human beings kind of stuck in this. And uh, Owen is basically, uh, as p- he's kind of picked to be a champion of, uh, for humanity by one of these factions. Um, and uh, the reason he gets picked is actually in Vendetta. Uh, we actually get to in Vendetta why, why he kind of winds up with this job. And uh, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. I get, I get to have a lot of fun with this because I get to bring in pretty much every mythology there is, uh, every mythos there is, and I just get, I just get, to, make, I get to make them fight. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, some of the, the, the fun is the way that you knit everything together, though. You don't just throw it in like uh, willy-nilly. I mean, uh, Agent Franks, for instance, he's got a he's got a backstory and a reason that fits in with all this, right? Oh yeah, so I lo- I love uh, I love doing all this stuff, but it's got to make sense. It's got to tie together. It's got to be cohesive. Um, so there's a lot of thought goes in for stuff that's basically you know big fun action adventure. I, I try not to you know just throw stuff out there. I got to make sure everything's organic. Everything makes sense. And so like Agent Franks in the backstory of Monster Hunter Nemesis. Um, it's an entirely different set of theology, um, the factions that are fighting there, uh, without giving too much away for people who haven't read that far into the series. But um, Well, there might be a hint in his name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want to give away too much, but yes, definitely. Um, and then Siege, I, I introduce uh, another one of the big bad guys that I've been te- I, I At this point, I've been talking about the guy for five books and teasing him in the background for five books before I ever really got to introduce him. And so I finally got to introduce the, this big bad guy in Siege. And he's not what people expect either. Um, so it's a lot of fun to, to take these super powerful, evil forces and, and you know, make them clash. Yeah. And, and then have little human beings stuck in the middle. Well, um, most, most human beings would run like crazy from such challenges. But uh, the thing about a monster hunter is that they... They stand and fight. I mean, that's sort of the test of whether you get in on it, right? Yeah, the saying and the the, the company saying that we use for every book is uh, Earl Harbinger always talks about flexible minds. The the most important thing a monster hunter can have, the most important trait they can have, is a flexible mind. And so, basically, no matter what happens or how weird it is, or they that they don't get stuck, they don't freeze, they deal with it. Uh, whatever the problem is, they deal with it. Often and uh, so that's with, kind of the, the hallmark of a, of a hunter. Uh, and, you know, other times I refer to uh, regular people scream and run and get eaten. Um, whereas hunters are the problem solvers. You know, they, they, uh, they, have, they have that mindset. And basically, the, when I first started the series, all the characters, uh, all the characters in the first book that I used were all basically kind of um, stock characters from, uh, from different horror movies. Like different kinds of characters that you'd see in horror movies. Only I fleshed these people out and I made them more interesting. And so basically, the idea was these people were the people who survived mm-hmm. different horrors, and this is what they wound up doing afterwards. Um, so yeah, they have to be flexible. They have to be tough as nails, and uh, nothing stuff doesn't get to them. You know, they just they just deal with it. And when you when you get together a cast of characters made up of people like that, oh man, it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> you could do a lot with that. Often the solution involves uh, adequate firepower to bring against the monster. 
Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's uh, it is a bunch of hardcore gun nuts, and also cool. I get to have a lot of sense of humor and a lot of dark humor and gallows humor in there. Just because you know people with dangerous jobs, they tend to have a really well-developed sense of humor, or they go crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before um, I'd like to talk some more about the how it all started uh, story, um, but before that, just a couple of other vendetta scenes that maybe you could just tell how it came to you. Or uh, I love you know the gangster gnome fight is just uh, one of my favorite scenes in the series. Can you sort of uh, talk about that? Well, yeah. So gangster gnomes. The idea was, and I established this in the first book was. One of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to take traditional fairy tale stuff and tweak it. I wanted to just have a different take on a lot of fairy tale type traditional stories and myths and just do it a different way. And so we did in the first book, I introduced elves and orcs. So I needed to keep that up in the second book. And, um, well, I was doing research and I love folklore. I love mythology research, millions of good ideas out there. And I was reading up on the, on the actual original legends from Scandinavia about gnomes and, Gnomes back in the olden days were not the cute, lovable, fuzzy, nice gnomes that we have in like modern, uh, you know, lawn ornaments. They were like, yeah. oh yeah, they were harsh little buggers. And so what it was is the farmers would leave out offerings to their the gnome that the the invisible gnomes that lived on their farm. They would leave out offerings because otherwise the gnomes would curse them. And uh, there was this one story about a farmer who. His gnome liked butter. He liked oatmeal and butter. So he'd leave out oatmeal with some butter on top of it. And uh, and then the gnome would not, like, curse his farm. And so one day somebody other than him had to take care of the gnome, and they put the butter under the oatmeal. So he, the gnome came out, saw the didn't see the butter on top, got kicked off, and he got ripped off and murdered all the farmer's cows. <laughs> and I, so I read this story, and I was like, oh, my gosh. That's like that's like the mafia. That's like a protection racket. It's a real nice, uh, real nice place you got here. It'd be a real shame if something bad was to happen to it. <laughs> and so I read that story, and I just got to thinking, okay, so if gnomes are basically criminal scumbags with violent tempers, um, what can I do with that? And so I introduced gnomes to America, and I decided, you know, if I'm going to do a, like a criminal uh, kind of outlook for the gnomes, they, when they came to America, they taught themselves American culture by watching gangster rap videos. <laughs> and so they've totally adopted the uh, the gangster rap subculture. Um, they have totally embraced that. That is like their that's like their identity in America is is, is just hardened criminal scumbags and uh, very flash, very bling. Um, hot-tempered little buggers. And, yeah, so the, the gnome scene in Vendetta's, um, <laughs> no, no spoilers, but it's actually, I think, one of the funniest action scenes, fun, one of the funniest fight scenes I've ever written. Uh, because of a cultural misunderstanding, Owen winds up in a fist fight against ten gnomes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, and he's one. faced some pretty, pretty evil uh, and hard monsters before, but they give him a run for his money. Oh gosh, yeah, because it's it's like the fists, the tiny fists, fell like rain, and so I, I made these guys like hard little dudes, and uh, that was a great fight scene. Yeah. yeah, but no, no pulling beards. That's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I've introduced a lot of fairy tale creatures and uh, myths, and had a lot of fun with all. I, it, it's always cool. To leave some normal because the readers, you know, 
sometimes you got to mix it up. So sometimes you leave the things alone and you leave them kind of traditional and normal. And other times you just tweak them. You just twist them and do weird stuff. Yeah. Well, one of the things is uh, in, in Vendetta also we, we meet up with uh, Owen's fiance's parents who used to be monster hunters but have been uh, tricked into – well, into being vampires now, and they're really badass vampires. One of the things Owen says is oh, yeah. uh, that he's only seen vampires sparkle when they burn. So, I mean, so these are not... That's actually, yeah, Julie's saying is, in real life, vampires only sparkle when they're on fire. Yeah. Because they're uh, they're really evil and they deserve to die. On t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, so one thing I want to do is, I, I mean, some monsters I make, you know, sympathetic... Um, like, so they're, you know, they're a monster, but you, you feel bad for them, or there's a reason the way they are, and so the readers, you know, they understand, and they feel for them. But with vampires, I wanted to make them just straight-up people. Uh, old school. Because when I started writing, uh, when I started writing the Monster Hunter series, uh, in pop culture, the, the, the current big hot thing was to make vampires misunderstood, romantic, emo, teeny bopper, you know, love story vampires. And, uh, and that's just, that's just bull crap. <laughs> and I hate that. I, I think vampires should be monstrous. So my vampires in the Monster Hunter series are just straight up evil. There is nothing redeeming about a vampire in the Monster Hunter series. If they don't immediately kill you, it's because they want to use you for a reason. You know, they're, they are bad, bad dudes. Um, so yeah, I, I, they're, they're vampires in the series, and plus I upped the power level on them. They're pretty tough. I mean, new ones, uh, like young ones, I made fairly easy to kill, but like the ones that have been around a while, the longer they're alive, holy moly, they are like weapons of mass destruction. So, uh... They can even take on, like, uh, the unstoppable force, like Frank's, um, f- at least momentarily. Uh, I think in the in the in Vendetta, it's where Ray Shackelford uh, pulls out Frank's spine, like, <laughs> pops up behind him, and yeah. admittedly, it was a sucker punch. Yeah, yeah. See, Frank's is still pissed about that. Frank's is still Frank's is still be mad about that because he got he got sucker punched. Because yeah. <laughs> if it been Fair fight, Frank's to take him. Yeah. Uh, Frank's, yeah, fair fight, Frank's did. But then again, Frank's had just just barely stepped out of another dimension. So to be fair to Frank's, he kind of got hosed on that one. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that was, a, that was a great sequence. Um, yeah, no, so there are, so, so like a strong vampire is one of the more powerful creatures in the Monster Hunter universe. Um, as far as the stuff you went and, you know, run into on Earth, not counting big extra dimensional super beings, you know, but, uh, as far as stuff you wind up facing on the planet, vampires are up there. So yeah, yeah I, I like having actual evil, mean vampires. I don't like wussy ones. You mentioned, I mean, uh, we do get some more Owen family mythology, uh, or family history in Vendetta. Um, we meet his brother, for instance, Mosh, um, oh, yeah, I love who, Mosh. Is, who used to be the wild one at least, right? Yeah, so the funny thing with Mosh is um, he is such a fun character, and then um, he actually, we get some point-of-view scenes from Mosh in uh, in Legion later on. So Mosh is a great character. And so for people who don't know what it is, is Owen's little brother is a rock star. He is a literal rock star, um, superstar 
musician. He's a guitarist in a really, really popular band. And what it is is when they were young, um, the two brothers kind of rebelled in different rebelled against their authoritarian dad in different ways. Um, and so Owen, by trying to be the most boring person possible, and Mosh by being the exact opposite. So he, you know, dropped out of high school, joined a band, <laughs> and lived the wildlife. But he's super talented. Uh, and so when we first meet him, he's kind of like at the top of his game and, uh, you know, on top of the world. Well, all these really unfortunate things happen to him. And so when we reconnect with him later in the series, his life is on a real downturn. It's kind of like he doesn't want to wind up as one of those VH1 behind the music specials (laughs) (laughs) about, you know, the washed up musician, where are they now? And, uh, yeah, so Mosh is a great character. And uh, Owen and Mosh... Uh, what his real name is David, you know, but Mosh Pit was just too cool not to do as a nickname for a rock star. But um, so, so Owen and his brother, they are a lot alike, but they're really different too. Um, you know, like like most brothers. So they have all these things that are in common, but they have these big personality clashes. Uh, but they love each other, and uh, you know, they're they're brothers. And uh, <laughs> poor Mosh. Yeah, the horrible things happen. Unfortunate things happen in in Vinda. Um, so let's can we talk a little bit about how this all started for you? Um, what? I mean, you were uh, you were uh, accountant, uh, working at a gun store, um, into competitive shooting. Um, ha- had you been writing all along, or how did the how did you get started on? Uh, writing and on the Monster Hunter series. I I started writing when I was young. I loved it. Um, I I was always a really avid reader, and I grew up out in the middle of nowhere in the country. And uh, we were really poor. But one of the things you could do, because it was cheap, was, you know, get library books. And so I read just tons and tons and tons when I was a kid. So I've always been a reader. Uh, And when I was young, I started writing stories. It was a lot of fun. Like most writers, you know, you... You start out as a reader, you say, hey, I want to try this too, and you want to tell your own stories. Uh, and, and so I really enjoyed it, but I never thought I was actually going to do it. And then uh, when I was in college, I wrote my first novel, and it was garbage. It sucked. Um, I, I wrote a thriller in college that just was terrible. <laughs> but um, So then I took about a decade off, and I went on and had a life, and you know, got married, had children, had a career, started my own business. I was doing all this stuff. And what it was was always, um, what started Monster Hunter was uh, I decided I wanted to try to write again. And I just I started getting the bug. You know, I was still a reader. And uh, one night uh, we were in bed, we were reading books, and my wife is reading this book, and it was the number one best, number one New York Times bestseller. So this is the, the top-selling book in the country. And I can't say the name of it because I've met the author since, and he's a really nice guy, so I won't badmouth him. But... Um, She's reading, or I'm reading this book, and it was terrible. It was horrible. So I started reading lines to my wife and telling her about it. And it, just, it, was, it was just awful. And it was just not a good book, and the characters were flat, and the dialogue was stupid, and the plot was predictable. And I thought, wow, that could be better than this. And so then I got another one of his books. I thought, that, okay, that had to be a fluke. This guy is super famous. This book had to be a fluke. Um, his other books have got to be better. No, this one, the other one was worse. <laughs> so I told my wife, I was like, look, if this guy can write the most popular book in the world, 
I can at least get published. And so that's when I decided to try it. And uh, at the time, I was huge into uh, my two hobbies were watching horror movies, which I still love horror movies. I still love monster movies. And the guns. I was a gun nut. I worked in the gun business. I uh, did a lot of gun stuff, training stuff. And uh, I was real active in the gun nut community. And so I kind of wanted to combine my two loves of gun nuttery and monster stuff. And uh, part of the idea was, you know, if you watch monster movies, the, the, the characters usually have to be kind of stupid in order to have a whole movie. The characters have to make bad choices. The characters have to be defenseless and get eaten. Because uh, you can't really fight back until the end of the movie, otherwise the movie would be over too soon. So gun nuts were always making jokes about horror movies, you know, uh, uh, how we'd like to see a horror movie unfold if it was our people. And that was just kind of a long-running joke. And then a, a friend of mine started a, a thread on an internet gun forum called Lions I'd Like to Hear in a Horror Movie Someday. <laughs> and uh, one of the lines in there was posted by a guy named Gillis Freeman, and it was the, uh, the line, the quote I actually opened Monster Hunter with was, um, you know what the difference between me and you really is? You look out there and see a horde of evil brain-eating zombies. I look out there and see a target-rich environment. And that quote, that quote made the whole idea gel. I'd already started on the project, but that idea just made everything click. Because of like, monsters were an opportunity. So all of a sudden, at that point, the story became about contractors. And, uh, and it just kind of went from there. And I wrote the book in about eight or nine months. Uh, I, I had two full-time jobs at the time. I owned a, my own business, and I still had my day job. Yeah. So I worked really, really late at night, and I worked... And I wrote, like, all day Sunday. That's how I did it. Uh, yeah, I cranked that first book out, and uh, it was actually pretty good. So the rest is history. That's yeah. where it came from, though, was just gun nuttery and monster flicks. You were, um, you lived in Utah for a while. You were in Utah. Um, right. Did you, um, just tell us, what was your home office like? Were you writing on the, on the uh, kitchen table? What were you, how did you go about? Where was Monster Hunter International composed? Okay, this is actually funny, because I, 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 uh, I actually had this conversation a little while ago with my kids, because uh, I have a big, fancy office now, and um, we're building a new house, and I'm going to have an even bigger, fancier office. That's like my reward to myself. But Monster Hunter was actually written... In a room, it was it was a storage room in our unfinished basement. <laughs> so, uh, at the time we lived in this little house, the basement was only partially finished, so some of the rooms weren't insulated. They were just concrete. It was just a bare concrete room uh, under the stairs. And my desk was an old door. It was, uh, it was an old door on top of cinder blocks. Um and so it was cold. I live in Utah, right? And this is an uninsulated room. So in the winter time, I would actually um, wear. A, I would actually be typing with a hat on. I would actually wear a uh, a winter hat to cover my ears and keep my ears warm. <laughs> and then I would I would type. You know, I couldn't have gloves on because I'm typing. And I would type. And I would stop. And I would. You know, whenever I got one to like read or thinking, I would I would stick my fingers in my armpits. <laughs> to keep my fingers warm until it was time to type again. Uh, so my office was, it was horrible. It was, uh, it was like me and like the room that we stored our canned food in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I wrote Monster Hunter in, in that room, and <coughs> uh, I've had a nice office ever since. Uh, so only, the first book got wrote in that Well, actually, the first first couple books got wrote in that room, to come to think of it. So Vendetta was written in there, too. Uh, Alpha was actually written in my... At that, at that point, I had a new job, and I was, I was back at being just an accountant. I'd sold my business. And so it actually got wrote in my office after work hours. Um, so I actually wrote, I, I would go to work, I would get done with work, and sometimes I would stay longer after work hours work, right, work, working on the book, or I would go into my office on the weekends, and I'd be the only guy in the office, and I would, uh, I would write on the weekends. And then when I was home, I would write at the kitchen table on a laptop. Um, so that's how I wrote Alpha. So... Yeah, I just don't have a lot of pity for these people who are like, oh, I just don't have the time or the means to write. And I'm like, yeah, you do. You just yeah. don't want to. Yeah. If you well, want to do it, you'll find a way to do it. Absolutely. Um, what is, uh, how did you meet up with Tony Weiskopf? How did it happen that uh, Bain came to publish Monster Hunter International? Oh, I was so lucky. Um, so I self-published. I self-published originally because um, I got rejected by everybody. And I disappeared in the uh, Bayon slush pile. I think manuscript got lost at some point, so I never even got a rejection from Bayon. But um, so I was going to self-publish, and I was just going to sell it on that same web forum of Gun Nuts. And uh, what happened was I was writing an online fiction serial, which later turned into Dead Six, which you guys published. And um, this one guy on the internet was like, "Hey, I I used to work at a big bookstore. His name was Tony Van Craig, and he's like, I used to work at this big bookstore in Minneapolis." How about you give me the manuscript? I'll read it. If I like it, I'll pass it on to my old boss. I'll be order some. It's a really big indie bookstore. I'm like, yeah, sure. So I let him read it, and he loved it. And he gave it to his boss, Don, uh, Don his old boss, Don Bliley. Don read it. Don loved it. Uh, Don then contacted Tony Weisskopf and said, you need to buy this book. This book is amazing. It is exactly a Bayon book. It is exactly what Bayon readers love. I could sell the crap out of it. You guys need to buy it. This guy's an idiot. He's self-publishing it. <laughs> mm. And uh, so, but it actually sold really good there, the self-published version. So then Tony Weisskopf contacted me, and she wanted to get a copy of it. And I was I was ecstatic because you guys said I I love Bayon. Um, my first books that I bought with my own money when I was a kid were. Uh, uh, Fangliff by John Dalmas and uh, one of the Hammer Slammers collections by Dave Drake. Mm-hmm. First books I ever bought with my own money when I was a kid. So I've been, I was reading Bayon since it started. And uh, so I was ecstatic. I sent it over to Tony and she loved it and made me an offer. And uh, I, I've, been with, uh, I've been with you guys ever since. That was part one of a two-part interview with Larry Correa. Part two and the conclusion of this interview will be available next time on the podcast. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, 
the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend, the cyberspy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad, even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Chapter 31 Brotherhood on Corsera Bacchus's whole crew stood near the pool in front of the manor, waiting for Daniel to do something. He hadn't made any announcement, but obviously somebody had. He looked at Vessie. She nodded. The set of the lieutenant's jaw showed that she was uncomfortable, but her voice didn't tremble as she said, Sir, it seemed to me that this is what we came here to do, and that the crew ought to have a chance to watch if they wanted to. She drew a deep breath and swallowed. She said, and before you ask, I talked to Captain Simona. Arnaud had made the former exile leader second in command of the Pantellerian naval forces on Corsera. And he offered to send ten spacers under Commander Angelotti to the Kaisha so that I could relieve Lieutenant Corey and the anchor watch to join us. Daniel thought for a moment, then grinned and said, Very good, Vessie. His only hesitation had been his surprise that Vessie, of all people, would make such a decision on her own. It was good that she had, but surprising. Sweeping the gathering crowd with his eyes, he said, If this is the way you Kaishas want to spend your time, you're welcome to do so, though I'll say that I usually found more interesting things to do on Liberty. Before I became a state and proper commanding officer, that is. He cleared his throat and said, And you know, I might decide to get a little improper myself once I've taken care of this little problem. He grinned at the laughter. I don't expect this to be very exciting, though. Well, we're ready for it if you're wrong, said Barnes. He and Son had drawn stocked impellers from the arms locker, while Dossie had a submachine gun. Wochins held a cutting bar instead of her usual length of pipe. What in heaven's name has Vessie told them? Daniel trusted those four spacers with the weapons they carried, which he wouldn't have said about everyone, even in this picked crew. He couldn't imagine how their hardware would be useful in the present situation, though. People want to help, Daniel, said Adele quietly from his right side. They don't like to feel that they're useless, even when they obviously are. None of us like that. She smiled. Daniel was used to Adele showing nothing in her expression. He had never seen her looking so sad, though. Hogg squatted on the lip of the pool, working with the controller. The Lord dangled in the water, collecting nerve frequencies which the controller sorted and analyzed. The shallow end of the pool had originally been four feet deep. Several inches of detritus, mostly organic, covered it. Wochins had used a whipstaff to probe down ten feet before she found hard bottom at the deep end. But the muck over the plasticized base was at least four feet thick. You could no more stand on it than you could stand on the water itself, but things certainly lived in its darkness. Daniel stripped his tunic off, then cinched his belt tighter to make it more difficult for things to wriggle down inside. He had bloused the cuffs of his trousers under the tops of his spacer's boots, which themselves were tough though flexible. 
they could be worn within a rigging suit as well as by themselves. While the boots didn't make swimming easier, neither did Daniel expect them to be a great hindrance. Hogg looked up and said, You know, master, I've never been the hand at one of these that you are. How about you take the controller and I get in the water? It's hot, and I wouldn't mind the dip anyhow. We'll do it my way, Hogg, Daniel said. He didn't try to argue. There was nothing to argue about. One or the other of them was going to take his chances with a sponge, and Daniel Leary would make that decision, had made that decision. The water in the pool circulated clockwise, driven by slow strokes of the sponge's tentacles, but the surface remained a mirror to the eye. Daniel could see the bottom here in the shallow end, though the water itself was dark and the muck was smooth except where something, a twig or in one case what looked very much like a surgical pin of stainless steel, stuck out of it. A worm-shaped animal the length of Daniel's thumb writhed into view, then vanished again beneath dead fronds from the plants in pots on the manor's porch roof. The creature had scores of tiny legs and a pair of mandibles half the length of its stubby body. Hogg rose, holding the controller in one hand and the lure in the other. The filament that connected them was a ghost in the sunlight. It coiled itself on a reel in the controller when the lure came out of the water. Suit yourself, Hogg said with bad grace. If it was me doing it, though, I'd lob in a grenade first. That would divide the sponge into bits, Daniel said, without killing them. It would make the pool into the equivalent of a bath in acid for any animal life, unless the lure works. If the lure does work, then the grenade wasn't necessary, and it will work. I said what I said, Hogg muttered, but he wasn't really arguing. Daniel couldn't imagine why the trick with the lure wouldn't work. Even if things went wrong, the Kaishis would get him out before he was devoured, and the medicomp in the ship would take care of the stings. It's going to work fine. As soon as Daniel and his crew had arrived, loafers on the plaza had begun drifting over to see what was going on. Now more civilians joined the spectators, some of them people who had been crossing the plaza, but also guests from the hotel portion of the manor and staff members from government offices on the ground floor. Daniel hadn't paid much attention to the audience. Logically, he had nothing, well, almost nothing to worry about. But millions of years of instinct told his nervous system otherwise. Then Adele called. Good morning, Captain Monfiore. And Daniel looked away from the surface of the pool. Georgie, he said. Say, you must have made good time. Hogg placed the lure against Daniel's chest and covered it with a length of cargo tape. The tape could be removed easily with alcohol, though it would leave a red patch that itched like a case of hives. That was inconsequential against what might happen if the Lord didn't stay in touch with his bare skin, masking Daniel's own electronic signature. When we get an offer like yours, the young Iskian said, we make the best time we can. And I'm here as a representative of the planet, not just the Monfioris. Though other clans will be sending their own negotiators shortly, you can count on that. Monfiori shook his head with an expression of amazement. Daniel, he said, you've saved Ischia. There'll be a statue to you in every clan capital on the planet, I swear it. And any help I can give you myself, well, just let me know. You and Ischia generally have already helped a great deal, Daniel said. And believe me, you're going to earn whatever haulage fees you work out with Commissioner Arnaud. But you'll have to forgive me for the moment because I have to clean up a little job right now. Hogg had finished cross-taping the lure. 
He stepped away, looking at the readout on the controller. His face was stony. What are you, Monfiore said, looking down into the pool between himself and Daniel. He blurted, by all heaven, Larry, is that a fire pot? I've never seen one that big, and what's it doing here anyway? That's what I'm going to learn, Daniel said. I think that a spacer named Captain Pearl brought it from Ischia, and I hope to learn that he brought something else with it. Cleveland and Graves, the only civilians who knew what Daniel was about, waited patiently. It was a credit to their philosophy that they showed no signs of impatience, though surely they must feel impatience. Wait, Monfiore said. Daniel, you're not thinking of getting in there, are you? Those pants won't be any protection if the fire pot grabs you, and one that size, well, I wouldn't doubt if its tentacles could reach the whole length of this pond. You don't know what the stings feel like, but trust me, it's worse than you can possibly imagine. I'll be all right, Georgie, Daniel said. The sponge, the fire pot, will think I'm one of its cleaner lice, that's all. The trousers are for other things that might take a nip out of me. I'll risk losing a finger, but there's parts I won't risk. Daniel was impatient, however well the transformationists were handling the delay. He sat on the lip of the pool and looked up at Hogg. Ready, Hogg? He said. I'm ready, Hogg said. And you're as pig-headed as any man born. Except that pigs is really smart and you bloody well aren't. Daniel, please, Monfiore said. I was stung by a fire pot when I was clamming, no bigger than my little finger, so I didn't see it when I reached down to clear the scoop. I was in bed for a month. He started to come around the pool, but he had fifteen feet to go, and one of the Kaishis would stop him if necessary. They didn't know what Six was doing, but they knew that no civilian was going to keep him from doing it while his spacers were alive. Daniel slid into the pool. Trickles dribbled down into his boots before the water really penetrated the fabric of his trousers. It was much colder than he had expected. He wondered what the rate of flow of the spring feeding the pool was. His feet squished onto the bottom, lifting the muck. The current was too slight for Daniel to notice a direction in the way the cloud spread. He didn't move for a moment, waiting to see how the sponge would react. There was no reaction. Despite Monfiore's warning, Daniel doubted whether the creature's tentacles could reach him here. The handbook on Ischian natural history, which Adele had found, said that the tentacles rarely were longer than the firepot's body. The specimen here was probably larger and much older than the creatures got on their world of origin where they faced predators, but even so. Daniel moved forward by slow steps. He'd be in over his head shortly, but he preferred to walk for as long as he could, hoping to make less disturbance that way. The water on his bare torso was startling at first, but as expected, Daniel didn't notice it after the first few moments. That was one of the reasons why he hadn't gone straight into the deep end where the sponge was attached, though that would have been the least disturbing way of getting there. Entering at the deep end would also mean that his first contact with the sponge would be full body. That seemed an even better reason to move up slowly. Weed rooted in the bottom trailed across Daniel's skin. The leaves were fan-shaped but so thin that he hadn't noticed them when he looked into the water from above. They were being browsed by inch-long creatures, worms, larvae, wearing cases glued together from bits of debris. They must be why the weed hadn't completely choked the pool since the sponge wasn't a browser. Hey, cried an onlooker. Hey, get that feller out of there. There's a thing in the end that'll eat him alive, and I don't mean maybe. Shut up, you bloody fool, Wochin said. Six knows what he's doing. 
I wonder if the wheat and the insects are native to Coursera. It was a less disturbing subject to consider than wondering whether tentacles were going to grip his waist and snatch him into excruciating pain. The Medicomp won't help if I die of anaphylactic shock before they get me to the ship. Daniel's next step put his chin into the water. He bobbed up and stroked forward easily with both arms. The trousers were a drag and he wasn't kicking his booted feet, but his arms would support him well enough for the few yards he had to go. Something trailed across Daniel's bare belly. It had been a tentacle six feet long at least. The natural history database had been wrong, or at least it wasn't correct for Iskian firepots transplanted to Coursera. The tentacle had brushed him instead of grabbing, and the stingers which covered the sponge's arms as well as all other portions of its exterior skin had not come out. The tentacle had simply been moving the water to bring food toward the creature's maw. Daniel took a deep breath. Another tentacle danced over his skin, trailing from his right shoulder to his left. It felt like the caress of an insect's wing. He ducked underwater. The sponge was a mass of pink and brown as big around as a washtub. The dark water muted its colors, but that filter blurred everything else to make the sponge stand out sharply. The creature was attached to the end of the pool. Daniel extended his right hand to feel the wall. The body of the sponge felt like a half-full wine sack against the inside of his arm. His fingertips touched a hard, slick surface, the pool's plasticized end wall. The long side nearest the manor was natural stone, through which groundwater percolated. Daniel pushed hard at the sponge, his mind disconnected from knowledge of the thousands of fiery cilia he was trying to squeeze out of his way. He touched a latch, but that took the last of his breath. He surfaced with a splash and a loud gasp, his eyes shut. Six, you all right? Wochins bellowed. Other Kaishis were shouting a melange of similar things. It's fine, Daniel said, and almost splashed under again. I'm fine. I think I found it. He took three deep breaths in sequence. He didn't try to answer questions as he trod water. With his lungs full, he ducked under again. Daniel knew where to go this time and thrust down with both hands. The sponge's body resisted like a roll of rubber matting, flexible but too massive to be easily moved. Cleaner lice the size of his thumbnail crawled onto his arm. His skin prickled as they nipped off hairs, dead protein. Daniel gripped the latch lever and tried to pivot it downward. The tentacles touched him, trying to shove him away the way they would have done a floating log. The sponge was a communal entity which had no central nervous system, let alone a brain. Nevertheless, the species' responses had allowed it to survive since the appearance of multi-celled life on Ischia. If the tentacles ripped the lure off my chest, Daniel thought. Adrenaline. He wasn't in a panic, but his glands operated on the orders of his lizard brain's hundreds of millions of years of reflexes, flooded his system. His hands twisted convulsively, snapping the corrosion that had bound the latch. The access plate of what was intended for a filter compartment swung sideways, taking with it the sponge which was attached to the perforated panel. The creature's body was so large that Daniel couldn't open the compartment fully, but he was able to reach in with his right hand and grasp the drawstring bag his fingers found there. Daniel shoved himself back, popping to the surface well away from the wall of the deep end. He backstroked, kicking furiously this time. 
The sponge lashed the water wildly, much as it would have done if a storm tore loose the rock which held it to a shoreline. If a tentacle grabs me now, it'll try to use me as an anchor, and I might very well drown. Daniel laughed at the thought. The spectators probably thought he was laughing in joy at having survived, but the truth was a little stranger than that. He wouldn't try to explain it to anyone, though. Hands gripped Daniel's upper arms and half-jerked, half-dragged him onto the plaza on his back. Corey had his left and, heavens, Adele had his right. Daniel looked up at her. You're stronger than I thought, he said through wheezes. Hysterical strength, I suppose, Adele said, stepping backward. Daniel lurched into a sitting position, then rotated to bring his left hand down on the plaza to help him stand. The Kaishis were cheering. Actually, most of the spectators were cheering, even the majority who didn't have any idea what was going on. Daniel turned to the transformationists, who were cheering also. Their faith didn't prevent them from defending themselves or from feeling enthusiasm about wholly non-religious matters, apparently. Master Cleveland, Daniel said, you might see what's in here. I rather hope it's what you were looking for. He held out the bag. The fabric was an extruded synthetic, but the drawstrings appeared to be purple silk tied off in a bow. Cleveland undid the bow, then carefully teased the mouth of the bag open. Instead of pouring the contents into the palm of his hand, he reached in with two fingers and brought out a jewel. It was a perfect ovoid about the size of a hen's egg. Though the clear stone was smooth, not faceted, it blazed in the sunlight. Around it was a network of hair-fine metal with a purple cast. I'm not an expert, Cleveland, Daniel said but I would guess that you have a diamond. And I wouldn't be greatly surprised to learn that the filigree is your unbihexium, Brother Graves, because it certainly doesn't look like any metal that I'm familiar with. There were more cheers. Daniel cheered too. I'll report on the library's installation when it's complete, Brother Graves said, as he and Cleveland accompanied Adele down Central Street's final slope to the harbor. Is the best way to reach you through your townhouse in Xenos, or should I send the information in care of the Navy? Adele didn't answer immediately, because the roar of the ship landing overwhelmed speech. The vessel's computer tried to hold it in a hover, but its poorly synchronized thrusters started a wobble. It dropped the last ten feet into the water as the best alternative available to the machine intelligence. Adele's tiny smile was perhaps colder than usual. The computer was correct, of course, but the crew which had just been badly jounced was probably cursing it rather than their own poor maintenance for causing the controlled crash. Saving stupid, lazy people often required hard measures. In Adele's experience, they never thanked you for it. Brotherhood Harbor was much busier now than it had been when Adele saw it first from orbit. She would never have a real spacer's eye for a ship, but she knew that the vessel was a moderate-sized freighter, an ordinary tramp, though larger than most of the ships, which called here while fighting was going on. Daniel, or even Evans, could probably have told her where the ship had been built. Study would accomplish many things, but real skill required a knack as well, a degree of focused interest which Adele would never have for starships. As the echoes of the splash receded, Adele said, To Chatsworth Minor, I suppose. But there isn't really any need to report. I'm pleased that you've taken on the task, since it needn't have been any concern of yours, and that you've given refuge to Master Lipschitz as well. 
Master Lipschitz doesn't appear to be any kind of burden, milady, Cleveland said, smiling. As thin as he is, he won't be straining the commissary to feed him. That's the first time I've heard him joke, Adele thought. Perhaps he's been taking lessons from Tovera. More seriously, Cleveland had been calmer and more centered since they had landed on Coursera, and he'd come back into contact with fellow transformationists. That meant mostly contact with Graves, of course, who was looking better also. Adele wasn't sure that a philosophy, or religion, whatever term one wished, that punished people who weren't in the company of other people was a very beneficial one. Danny was waiting with Hogg in the plaza where Central met Harborside. There was no longer a platoon of soldiers stationed there, but traders had laid out their wares on blankets, the same sort of food and tawdry whimsies that bumboats hawked to the anchored vessels. With peace had come buskers. A man was juggling, and a couple, the boy was young and the girl was very young, was singing a dialogue between Lord Randall and his mother. The girl wasn't very convincing in the part of an old woman, but her voice was clear and pleasant. Adele stepped ahead of the transformationist. They slowed deliberately to let her reach Daniel alone. Tovera had been following the three of them. The fact that she didn't sprint ahead to put herself between her mistress and the two men showed either that she was mellowing or that she trusted Hogg to prevent Cleveland and Graves from attacking Adele successfully. That Tovera trusted Hogg seemed more likely. Daniel, Adele said, I regret that I'm late. I wasn't noticing the time or I would have informed you that it was taking longer than I'd thought to remove the last case of books from the rubble. We weren't going to leave without you, Daniel said, smiling. With an ordinary spacer, I might have sent out a squad under a bosun's mate to check the bars in jail. But I didn't think that would be of very much use in finding you. He gestured the transformationist forward. Brothers, he called. I'm glad to see you again before we lift. Or have you decided to return to Cinnabar with us, you at least, Master Cleveland? The juggler was using four cubes whose faces flashed changing imagery as they spun. His hat lay on the ground in front of him with a few coins in it, but a young boy was also working the spectators, offering to sell similar cubes. Thank you, Captain, Cleveland said. I'm to go back to Pearl Valley as Brother Graves' aide. Sister Rennie will be replacing him in the office here. She has the skills and her, well, other skills don't appear to be needed to defend the community at present. Will Colonel Rennie be bringing a companion? Adele said. A few years ago, she wouldn't have spoken, and until she joined Daniel and the family of spacers around him, she wouldn't even have understood the reason she was asking the question. The workload in Brotherhood should drop back to its previous pre-invasion level, Graves said, calmly but with a slight frown. We need an agent here, but there's no need for a second person to be removed from the community. Someone will replace Rennie in a few months. Adele shrugged. It was none of her business, and she had never seen any point in arguing in support of the obvious. Daniel looked at her sharply, then said to the transformationist, You feel that separation from your community is a hardship. What Lady Mundy and I have noticed is that both of you seem much better off with the other's companionship than you were while you were separated from all your fellows. Speaking as an RCN officer, if the operation were under my command, I would assign at least two personnel to every detached location. He grinned and added, just as I would to a listening post. Eh, Hog? And it helpeth the folks assigned wasn't rubes who couldn't find their asses with both hands, 
Hogg said. But yeah, one guy alone is worse and useless. That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and the platonic form of the cinder block made with golem mud and vampire blood, which the building blocks of Larry Correa's original basement office were mere shadows of, and the thanks and praise of a grateful readership for Larry Correa, creator of the Monster Hunter series and author of the new signed leather-bound edition of Monster Hunter Vendetta. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 